Hello, welcome to the Cartography Podcast. This episode will be about education. This is a topic which is uh, near and dear to my heart as uh, both, a, I would say, kind of a lifelong student and a parent of two small children. You know, especially when I had kids, I took a significant interest in education and what it was all about, what it really means to educate a child. And uh, I think one of the first things that I want to talk about are just all of the assumptions that we carry around about what education is, what it means. You often hear uh, this term thrown around in the political context, you know, more or less funding for education or the education system is inadequate, etc. And so I thought one way that would really make sense to talk about this is to back up a little bit and sort of lay out a little bit of the historical context behind what education has been in the past, particularly in America, and we'll touch on a few other places in the Western world, and sort of how more or less that we came to be where we're at today. I want to say, as I've said with regard to many other topics, uh, neither one of us on this podcast is an expert. I will be citing extensively for this episode and providing you guys with a lot of primary and secondary sources. Please do check those out because there is a a wealth of information on this topic that I think, uh, for better or worse, really does require a little bit of in-depth understanding and research. Before we do that, you know, I think maybe we should just say what our, go over a little bit of our own educational experience. Maybe we're not experts, but I think we probably do have more experience than most people do. So personally, uh, my mother was an English teacher in high school. So I grew up hearing about stories from her perspective my whole life. And then um, I went, I started school at a private Catholic school up until eighth grade. And then I went to a public high school, which was a pretty different experience than that. And then I went to a private liberal arts college after that. That's really interesting. Uh, so growing up with a parent as a te- was was your mom a, a public school, high school teacher? Yeah, that's right. W- was there anything in particular you feel like that experience really kind of, like what insight do you feel that gave you that perhaps many of us who just attended public schools would not have? Well, it was definitely sort of a look behind the curtain to some degree, because I mean, like she would just be like pretty blunt and open and honest, like with with us about how stuff at school was, you know, whereas like when you're a student in the class, you might get a certain perception of what the teacher thinks and the sort of like facade that they put up in the classroom to command authority. Right. But when that is kind of, when that barrier is kind of gone, you really do get like the the true feelings that the that the teacher has behind it at at least in my case um so it was definitely like i was <laughs> i'll put it this way i was i was prepared for the public school experience by the time that i got there interesting so i mean if you had to characterize her just comments in the evening and just her her overall perception of what it meant to be a teacher like how she felt about her job how would you characterize it I would say that she had a pretty realist perspective, but I mean, this was also, so like she retired maybe five years ago. So like it seemed she was able to cultivate like a really good course though, over, over 30 years of being a teacher. And she taught like the 
classical American literature and some English literature as well. And they were like mostly advanced courses, but then she also had like regular courses as well. But she was also like, it wasn't lost on her that she was mostly like babysitting these kids uh-huh. and that most of them had like really bad family situations. But then like she, she, she just like loved teaching the like advanced classes that so, like, that was the only reason that, that she would do it towards the end. At least like being around those kids just like made the day so right. much better for her. And she was able to like, actually like talk to people who wanted to listen to what she had to say, you know, cause uh-huh. like, like the high school that I went to was like pretty rough. To, to yeah. be honest and like so in the regular classes i mean like you'd be lucky if, like i'm sure it would be hard for her just to like get out what she was trying to say like let alone like administer like a test or something you know so yeah so i mean that's that's really interesting you know my my experience with school is pretty i mean my gosh it's it's really run the gamut i've attended pretty much every kind of grade school imaginable except for like a religious or so I've never been to Catholic school or yeshiva or anything like that. I did, uh, I attended public schools, both city and suburban public schools. And for a couple of years, I attended a military boarding school, which was a, you know, private academy. Uh, that was definitely an interesting experience because, you know, despite, I think what a lot of people would assume with, uh, private schools, at least the military academy, was very much, like, it was very rough, like what you're saying. A lot of these kids were, you know, kids who were sort of sent away, if you will. So that was an interesting experience. I feel like it definitely, you know, it it gave me a little bit of kind of context for what most, like, American kids are sort of like. And also, I think, in the long run, probably steered me towards the military in in a lot of different ways. Yeah, that's an interesting point, because, so, like, coming from private school originally like then in college I knew people who just like stayed in private school the whole time Uh and like it was just really clear that like they didn't really have any idea of like what regular kids were like like what the masses were like you know yeah yeah for sure and that's a a really interesting segue I think into you know into just the the overall topic that that I'd like to try and discuss which is what really are these things that we call schools? Like, how do they work? What, what is sort of the context in which they came about? Um, so like I said earlier, to kind of back up a little bit, uh, in American history at least, prior to, uh, let's say, somewhere around the late 19th, early 20th century, the vast majority of what we call schooling in the United States of America particularly in the rural parts of the United States, which is uh, at that time where predominantly the population was living. Uh, Schooling for children was quite decentralized and sort of, um, I hate to use a word like spontaneous, but, you know, just kind of context-based. There were village schoolhouses. In many cases, uh, you know, those, those were churches that were, Uh, basically driving that process and funding it and administering that education. And then in in the 1860s, of course, we had the Civil War, which fundamentally changed the relationship that most Americans had with their state and federal governments. And what you began to see is gradually there was a process of industrialization, like mass industrialization, taking place in the United States. Uh, particularly throughout uh, a 
a lot of the rural areas in the former Confederate states, so the you know recently defeated South, was basically you know in, in many regions uh, like in the North Carolinas or in in the, the Carolinas, for instance, that became like a textile producing area. Uh, West Texas was transformed into the cotton production center of the United States. A lot of this stuff, these kind of major industrial machinations, which, by the way, many uh, uh, were led and funded by the Rockefeller Foundation, who we'll talk about in more detail shortly. You know, that was going on. And essentially the process that had already taken hold throughout the mid and late 19th century in the north and in northern cities was spreading throughout the rest of the country, and you were really starting to see an industrial economy develop. And as this industrial economy developed uh, around certain focal points, such as factories, farming regions, uh, these you know uh, industrial areas, like what I was talking about with the textile mills, you you began to run into the problem uh, of well, first of all, the wages that these people were paid under the circumstances, for whatever reason, were low enough that you really began to see a lot of women going to work. It was really around the, you know, in most industrializing countries, this is like when you see that happen, is in the wake of mass industrialization, you often tend to see a lot of females entering the labor force. Uh, and that's, again, because wages are scarce enough that one person can no longer uh, afford to to basically provide for the household. So was that trend going on prior to the World Wars? Well, yeah. So that's kind of we're in the period right now that's kind of, uh, I would say, prior to World War One, And for sure, the World Wars accelerated that process and allowed it to just be kind of you know, imposed in a way that had not been there before. But this process was ongoing. Uh, you know, I mean, it's the same thing in Europe, for instance, you, the, the, you know, to kind of make the connection between industrialization, urbanization, and feminism. Uh, you, you have the first kind of what we would today call feminists uh, beginning to write in the late 18th, early 19th century in England, just as they were industrializing. And I mean, again, in, in a way, this this is pretty intuitive, right? I mean, you have, you know, what happens in an industrializing economy is that you have uh, a bunch of rural people who, due to technology, agricultural technology usually, become displaced. They're no longer needed uh, for the labor that they had been providing on the farm. So they really have no choice at that point, especially in like, uh, sort of a feudalist order, like most European countries were, you know, you you really couldn't just up and go wherever you wanted and do whatever you wanted. Uh, there were guilds, there were all sorts of laws that controlled people's movements. And what these people had left for them is to go into cities. And that environment was essentially 100% controlled and curated by the corporations that, you know, administered this process of industrialization. And in their mind, they just didn't see any reason to pay people the kind of wage that, you know, would allow a, a husband, a father to support an entire family. So in, as a natural sort of result of this process, uh, women having traditionally been the, 
the sex which is responsible for child rearing. Uh, if you have all these women entering the workplace, you know, what are you going to do with the kids? And so this is basically how what we understand as modern compulsory public schooling came into being in the United States. The first major public schools were in the biggest cities, places like Boston, Chicago, Philadelphia, New York, etc. Uh, and there was, you know, a lot of kind of complex stuff going on at this time. I mean, number one, you have the obvious, you know, incentive from the the, the capitalist perspective or the, the corporation's perspective of, you know, you want these people to be a reliable workforce and therefore you want them dependent on wages and you essentially want to control as much of their lives as possible. It's, you know, uh, you could look at it as a, as a de facto form of serfdom or slavery, however you want to characterize it. The fact is there's a very clear incentive to having a workforce that you can depend on and that requires controlling them. I'm sure there's also an aspect where like the employees of the corporation literally just needed somebody to, to watch their kids. And like one, one of their demands would be that, okay, like we're working here all day long. You need to provide school for my kids. Like I want them to get an education. So like, I, I don't want to necessarily frame it as if it's like completely a hundred percent sinister and cynical. I mean, it definitely could, it definitely could be, but yeah. like, there is like a pragmatic aspect of it as well that I think sometimes gets lost when people talk about this. Oh, for sure. And I mean, I, I, you know, I can absolutely see from the perspective of that family, that mother who finds herself in that situation, you know, if you accept the premise that you're going to be required to be displaced from your traditional homeland, crowded into a city where you have to work for wages and rent your living space, uh, well then, yeah, I mean, there really, there wouldn't be much more of a solution unless you happen to be wealthy enough that, you know, one person can uh, afford to support the household. It's really a great example because it's like the first part of the vicious circle of industrialization and modernity. Like once you accept that you're going to be working in the factory 40 hours a week or 60 hours a week or however many hours. Like once you accept that, like you said, you're not going to be on your homeland. You're not going to see your kids. Like you're not going to educate them. You're not going to be able to turn to your community or the people who you sort of see eye to eye with for help in, in an emergency. You know, you're just, you're basically on your own. The person you depend on is your employer. Right. So instead of looking at the church or uh, like like your local community, um, yeah, then you would be looking at the corporation basically exactly. to, to guide the community. And it's interesting you mentioned churches too, because, uh, you know, as a big part of this, so if we're talking about the United States in the early 20th, you know, late 19th, early 20th century, one of the, you know, the driving factors as well as the results of this process was massive waves of European immigration. And the majority of those people were Catholic. Uh, you know, we kind of take for granted today that the majority of most of our, you know, cities east of the Mississippi, the majority of the population is Catholic. But that wasn't always the case. That happened right around this time period. And a big part of the compulsory schooling movement, which was very tied in with the progressive political movement in the United States, guys like Teddy Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, uh, a big part of this kind of rhetoric was anti-Catholic hysteria. It was uh, very similar, actually, in a lot of ways to the sort of rhetoric you hear with regard to immigration today. 
ironically enough, oftentimes from the, the, uh, the uh, descendants of, of those uh, Catholic immigrants. But uh, as those people set up shop in cities, they, they started Catholic schools. And Catholic schools are, are really interesting because, and, and we'll kind of touch on traditional and alternative forms of education a little bit later, but I want to talk a little bit about Catholic schools because for whatever reason, they have uh, managed to preserve within that institutional framework. And I think Catholic education in general falls under the Jesuit wing of the Catholic church. I'm not exactly sure how that all works, um, but particularly with higher education, like I know most Catholic universities are referred to as Jesuit universities. But the, the Jesuit order, Catholic schools in general have preserved uh, the closest thing I'm aware of to the traditional interpretation of the seven liberal arts, otherwise known as the trivium and quadrivium. Um, the seven liberal arts are grammar, logic, rhetoric, um, arithmetic, geometry, music, and astronomy. Before we go too deep into that, I just want to clarify for the, as far as Catholic education goes, it's like the way it typically works is that if you're a part of a church, uh, that church would normally have school associated with it. And then the church would pay for like the vast majority of the tuition fees for the school. So like when I went to Catholic school, it was only like a couple hundred dollars a month for my parents to, or a couple hundred dollars a year for my parents to send me there. Um, and then they also have the same sort of deal with uh, certain secondary education, so like certain high schools. And then a bunch of those high schools have partnerships with Jesuit colleges, where it's sort of the same deal, where like if you attended the Jesuit high school, you could get credit or like a preferential entry or yeah, whatever preferential en entry and also reduction in fees at the Jesuit college. So like if you stick through the Catholic thing the whole way, they sort of set up an incentive structure for you to, for you to do that. That's really interesting. Yeah. I remember growing up in New York, you know, it was like pretty well understood that if you wanted to send your kid like for a halfway decent education and you know, you didn't want to pay a lot for it, like Catholic school was the way to go. I knew I had a lot of Jewish friends who attended Catholic schools, you know, for, for that reason. Yeah, because it's, it's sort of a misconception because people think like, oh, it's like a private school. It must be like really expensive or something. But like by the time you end up going through like all the economics of it and like if, if you really do stick it through and take the courses that are going to give you the credit and then you go to the college, like it, it could end up being worth it in certain circumstances. Yeah. So, yeah, getting back briefly to just like Catholic education. So, you know, I just wanted to kind of wrap that up. Like I, I think it's really interesting that still to this day, uh, one of the only places where you can find a sort of semblance of, um, and, and the, the, the trivium and quadrivium that I was talking about earlier, those basically, I mean, those date back to like the Greek and Egyptian mystery schools, but they were popularized in the kind of medieval era and codified as like this methodology for education. And at that time, of course, uh, uh, you know, going back through history in general, Education was never considered this kind of universal thing that everybody would get, you know, the same version of. It was always understood as, while yes, there are these certain arts and sciences that we want to teach, you know, it's very much kind of geared towards the circumstances of the student, where they are in their lives. And there's a lot of interesting material about, about the methodology of, of medieval education and the, the seven liberal arts. 
But what's so cool is that Catholic schools, for whatever reason, still teach stuff like this. Like they actually teach students calligraphy and proper, you know, essay writing and, and like rhetoric and, and debating. And these things are extremely valuable skills for anyone who kind of, uh, I would say, wants a little bit of intellectual uh, independence. You know what I mean? People who can kind of think for themselves, they really need these skills. I mean, I guess I just kind of want to give the general impression that the, like I said, I will cite sources specifically backing this up, but there really was a very much intentional system of kind of vertically integrated living, you know, so people would work in a factory, they would live in a certain, you know, they were usually slums in, in this era. Uh, and, you know, they would send their children to this school and people were kind of brought into this fold. I think, you know, the, the compulsory schooling system, the public education system in the United States, since it was put into place, uh, definitely has undergone some changes. I mean, I think a lot of us are pretty familiar with the sort of you know, we hear a lot of people from like our parents' generation talking about how, you know, when they were in high school, uh, the like the the schooling was actually pretty decent. You know, your mom probably remembers a time when when uh, certain uh, disciplines were actually taught relatively seriously. And, you know, this you can more or less correlate to the phases of the economy, I would argue. So, you know, when the United States was like at the height of its industrial production, we were actually educating students in science and math like, you know, a lot of normal countries still do today, like places like China and Russia and India. Um, you know, I don't know exactly how closely you could compare the results, but generally speaking, there were pretty robust and successful kind of STEM education uh systems. You know, the public school system was doing a relatively decent job. And then in the uh, 1970s and 80s, you saw basically a massive shift in the U.S. economy from like a Keynesian industrial post-World War II economy to this kind of post-industrial information economy and service-oriented economy. And what what that did was it removed the demand for a lot of the kind of STEM-oriented skills that used to be, I mean, you, you know, you kind of have to figure, like, even people who work in factories and work in kind of these industrial contexts, they need to have certain, like, it behooves the employer to make sure that they have certain basic skills that you can rely upon. You know, they can write simple words, they can do basic arithmetic, that you know, these kinds of things. But as the economy changed, the education system changed with it. And what you basically saw was a public education system, a grade school system that was really no longer intended to give this like massive output of workers into the economy. Um, because it was understood that the direction the economy was moving in it, basically, there is no place for most people, you know, and so I think this kind of gives us the dynamic that we are mostly familiar today with like dilapidated urban schools with extremely low graduation rates. A lot of this was, of course, concurrent to 
some of the issues that were beginning to take place in the black community, which represents a, a huge percentage of the urban um, public school population. You know, uh, this is right around the time that uh, Vietnam was happening. So there was a lot going on that I think you could argue led to just a general deterioration in public education. Yeah, I think there's a lot of factors that contribute to it. I think economic is definitely a main one, as you pointed out. I think uh, demographics probably also play a huge role just in the fact that like students don't feel like connected to each other, like they're not from the same community necessarily. So there's like mm-hmm. sort of a, a barrier there. This is when they started busing. So like in the United States for, you know, basically since this era we're talking about since like the 70s or so, there's been this massive norm in most public school districts where there is like an attempt to consolidate and centralize schools, like students within fewer schools. And as a part of this process, you began to see, in particular, within cities, a lot of students, they basically tried to make it so that everything was like dispersed, the populations were dispersed. So they would take uh, black students who were attending like traditionally, you know, underserved and failing schools, and they would shut those schools down and they would bus them to like where all the white kids go. And in the rural areas, this is like a little bit even more of an ordeal for a lot of people because like sometimes kids have to ride like two hours to school um, because, you know, the, the systems of state and federal funding, basically they, you know, they essentially establish that, okay, this is going to be the school that everyone in this zone attends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that like economics are a big factor. I think demographics are a factor. But even beyond that, and it's interesting that you brought it up in context of post-Vietnam, I think since then there's just been like a gradual tide of less and less people buying into the whole system. And then like ultimately that manifests in education in a major way. So like if you're, let's say you're 16 years old and you're in high school, like, and you're just like not buying into the whole society that you're existing within well then you're just not going to care about getting an education and at least like in my public high school like that was very apparent that there was i mean i would say at least 30 to 40 percent of the kids in the school were just like openly did not want to be there like didn't make any effort whatsoever and like it was clear that like they were just not buying into like whatever whatever the central narrative around school or whether it was like the American dream at large or however you want to think about it, a significant percentage of the kids are just not buying into that at this point. Totally. And, and I mean, I think it's difficult to blame them when, you know, like it it is right around that time that you really are beginning to see that disconnect between a lot of that narrative and what people are actually experiencing. You know, like if you, if you're, being told you, you go to school and like, you're being told all this kind of good government stuff, you know, this civic minded type of talk and, you know, history, founding fathers, et cetera, nothing in your experience matches up with any of that talk. You know, it's, it's going to be very difficult, I think, for people to take it seriously. You know, I, I think it's pretty relevant now to talk a little bit about some of the reactions to some of these changes, uh, if we can all sort of agree that the public school, I mean, I feel like it's pretty universally agreed upon by people on all sides of the political spectrum that the public education system in the United States is, you know, very few of us would really kind of desire to send our children there if we had the choice. Um, It's not producing the results that it claims to produce. Uh, 
I read an article yesterday. I think it said that, I mean, I don't know how they estimate this, but I think it said that the year over year increase in homeschooling is over 500% now, but it, it'll be interesting to see how that holds up over the next few years, but I guess that'll be dependent upon uh, pu- public policy and economics as well. But but just in that one year, I mean, that's a pretty remarkable change. Well, and of course, uh, you know, the, the whole COVID thing certainly didn't hurt. Uh, I think, you know, it, it really turned what uh, I think for a lot of people was just a basically demoralizing, hopeless situation into, uh, okay, well, this is crazy. Like, I can't send my child, you know, to, to this place. Um, but I think a lot of people have been coming to that realization even before COVID. Um, so let's talk about homeschooling. Uh, homeschooling, I think, is one of the clearest sort of responses to um, what I think you know most people consider to be a failing school system. The term homeschooling specifically refers to the idea that you are trying to recreate uh, more or less the classroom environment at home. Uh, so homeschooling, strictly speaking, is where you would... Uh, make an attempt to sort of uh, obtain all the similar materials and uh, recreate a similar curriculum, but you would just do it at home with your own child. There is also, I mean, there are a lot of kind of alternative forms of schooling. Let's just sort of briefly go over all of them. You've got things like Waldorf and Montessori, which are really interesting uh, educational programs that actually go back quite a while. Um, at least to like the World War II period, if not farther back than that. Um, but but I, I think, uh, you know, they, they kind of provide a, a slightly more humanistic uh, and sort of child-led, in a way, take on, on education. Yeah, so the, the Waldorf School was started by Rudolf Steiner. He was one of the German idealists, and he was part of the, like, German romantic philosophical tradition. Um, and he, he actually got started. He was the editor of one of the Goethe archives in Weimar, Germany. Um, but, and, you know, interestingly enough, related to what we were just talking about, most of like Goethe's romanticism was, a, was like sort of reactionary to the industrialization that was going on in Germany at the time. So like you really got this uh, like deeply romantic tradition taking hold uh, in Germany. And then Steiner sort of pushed this through the Waldorf school that he started. And he ended up doing like a certification program uh, at Oxford. And then there were a bunch of registered teachers who then spread out like across Europe and across the United States and Australia. Um, So that's why you see these Waldorf schools everywhere. But um, they have a couple interesting philosophical tenets that they abide by. Uh, one of them is that they tried everything that they use in the classroom is supposed to be of natural origins. And the basic idea is that the kids should be like, like they should cultivate and retain that connection to nature, even within the classroom. Uh, and then another interesting thing about it is they try to make the the schools actually resemble the home so that it's like more closely related to homeschooling than say like a traditional public school. But um, yeah, so that was started in the early 1900s. And it was actually like, it was shut down in Germany, um, I think during World War II. And I'm not sure if it's like come back there or not, but, but yeah, there's a bunch of them all over the world now and they're, they're still operational. That's interesting. There's actually one not too far away from me in Vermont. Um, We, uh, we considered sending our, 
our kids there for like uh, briefly and uh, you know, didn't end up working out. But it's interesting that you, I want to take a little tangent here just because you, you mentioned uh, Steiner and Germany and this, this whole kind of um, uh, this uh, idealism, romanticism movement. I think it's really important to talk about the connection between the United States and Germany in terms of education and in particular higher education. So what many people may not know is that the university system, the system of higher education that we really are, uh, that we know and love today and take for granted, originated in Germany. Uh, it started there in the late 19th century, you know, relatively shortly after the formation of the, the German Empire itself. And uh, now there were, there were sort of uh, predecessors to it, I think, in, in Prussia, uh, but but the idea of like this kind of national university system to educate a professional class uh, came from the German Empire. Uh, the the PhD came from the German Empire, and actually I think it originated in Prussia. Uh, used to be referred to as the Prussian PhD. In fact, Woodrow Wilson was the first U.S. president. I believe this is true. Who who got the uh, the Prussian PhD? Uh, the the university system in the United States was modeled almost exactly on the university system in Germany. And I think this is relevant to talk about specifically because if we look at the kind of... See, we're all taught about nationalism in Germany. It's like a very well-understood you know, familiar narrative to everybody that, you know, Germany kind of went through this nationalist period in reaction to Napoleon, and that led to World War One, and then led to World War Two, and it's this big, scary thing. But I think in many cases, people don't really understand the degree to which that happened in the United States exactly the same way, modeled on Germany right around World War One. And so, I mean, I want to make this point to just say that like, I think it's really interesting that you have in this country of, you know, sort of decentralized communities and government by legislation and all of this kind of history that we have in the United States, that you had this uh, very nationalistic, militaristic university system and education system take hold. Uh, and it was, of course, right around the time that the United States was fighting against the German Empire, or, you know, shortly would be. Um I'm not sure exactly what that means. I just think it's an it's an interesting little parallel. There. The the reason that I I bring this up is because the university sort of uh, the academic class, the the intelligentsia of the university system in the United States, uh, it was a huge driving factor in establishing the system of compulsory education that would basically be in place around that era. Uh, the, the, the progressive movement is really kind of the catch-all term that you would want to use to describe these people. But, you know, it, it is, I think, very significant to keep in mind that uh, the, the sort of thinking behind all of this and the motivation behind all of this was very much to create a, a nation-state. And educating the youth was understood as a key component of that. And that's why you had tax-free foundations like the Rockefeller Foundation, but in particular, the Carnegie Foundation. Carnegie Foundation was particularly instrumental 
in uh, transforming education in the United States. And that all started with the universities. That's a very familiar story to us, I think, today. Anyone who is at all concerned with the just the just sort of general social and political turmoil going on in the United States, I think a lot of us can very clearly recognize the way that that stems from the university system. Now that you brought up the Rockefeller and the Carnegie Foundations, I mean, it's interesting to, well, I would just like to make a note of how connected these NGOs are to uh, curriculum and the way that these universities operate. So like they have a significantly influential role within what takes place at universities, like as evidenced um, recently by even, even this is the way the Bill and Melinda Gates foundation works. Like they fund certain research that is then done through um, universities. I, I don't want to say that Bill and Melinda Gates are funding specific research in universities because I'm not actually sure about that hundred percent, but I know that generally NGOs and foundations uh, conduct studies through universities and those universities are sort of beholden to those grants for the program. So like it sort of creates this um, interwoven system of yep. where they're dependent on each other and could influence each other's behavior. A hundred percent. And it's, and I actually work at a university right now, so I'm relatively familiar with the process of applying for grants and all. And I mean, it's, it's 100% what you said. They've created a system whereby the universities are economically incentivized through a combination of regulations and government grants and all these things to essentially come up with anything that they can, you know, anything that they can get funded, that they can get grants for, that's what they'll try and do. That's essentially what re that's the job of a research university and the, the personnel that work within it, the professors, the research professors. And so you have, on the one hand, that incentive to ask for money, and then you have these uh, NGOs, tax-free foundations, which, you know, they have a certain mission statement, hey, we exist to promote this, you know, and as long as they agree to give you money, you put out your, your paper, you know. Now, to me, that is like about the clearest conflict of interest you could ever imagine from uh, an institution that is purporting to be some kind of like uh, sort of empirical ar ar arbitrator of, of the truth. You know, that's essentially what universities, I mean, they build themselves as kind of engines of, of science and research, but which they are, but in fact, they are doing that science and research in order to serve very specific ends, you know, which they get paid to do. This is sort of the problem, like with all like incentive structures, like from my perspective, it's, it's just not possible to design the perfect incentive structure that you could just let run that humans don't have to maintain. They all get to a point where it requires human intervention to stop the system when it gets to these edge cases. And it's just like pretty clear now, at, like at, in Western society that like the level of distortion of the system has just gotten really crazy. But like what it requires is somebody to, I don't know how the, how it works at the university level, but like, I'm sure there's some quasi regulatory body that approves the, the grants, you know, or, or approves the relationship with the NGOs. Like it's like, and of course everybody's just like incentivized to allow it to continue, but like there, I'm sure there's a mechanism where somebody could remedy the situation if they had the fortitude to do so. Totally. And, and that's the, that's the trick. I mean, you could basically 
describe the entire, you know, all systems of coercion essentially work that way. If someone were willing to essentially sacrifice themselves, put themselves at risk at the very least. Uh, and I think, I mean, some of the, the social costs of these things can be even more overwhelming than the physical ones for people. Uh, but when you're talking about someone in a position of authority who could affect something like this, you know, some, uh, you know, whatever, like whether it's the person reviewing the grants or whether it's like the dean of the universe, whatever it is, uh, that person would essentially have to jeopardize not only their economic situation, but their social situation. In many cases, like the people that are in these positions, they only are allowed into these positions towards the ends of their careers. And, you know, put yourself in the position of somebody who has worked 20 or 30 years, you know, they're trying to get their pension, you know, they're trying to retire. I don't think I mean, it's it's ultimately a system which really does make it as difficult as possible for people to do the right thing. And a big part of that, in my view, is just the, the way that these systems disconnect human beings from one another. You know, they create these intermediary systems, these rules and regulations, and people through whatever process of psychological manipulation, there's, you know, there's symbols and there's slogans and there's all these people are essentially convinced to go along with this uh and there's a lot wrapped up in it and it's there's a reason i think that that things are set up this way you know it works pretty darn well so getting back to uh i know that was kind of a long tangent but i thought it was really important to touch on the kind of german university thing uh getting back now to sort of more alternative forms of education and perspectives on education. We didn't get into uh, like specifically what the Carnegie and the Rockefeller Foundations have done. I think it would be interesting to go back to that. So I would actually, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post a source in the notes for that. There is a fantastic, inter I mean, I think it's an absolute treasure of a source. There is an interview with United States Senator Norman Dodd. You know, he was a senator back in the, I don't know, 50s or 60s or something, if not even earlier. Super old. It, it actually, the interview took place, I think, less than a year before his death. And um, he is talking in great detail about how he was the senator who was directly personally responsible for overseeing the, uh, the, pro the project whereby the Carnegie Foundation sort of was trying to take over the higher education system in particular. He talks about that in great detail, and I'm definitely going to post that. But essentially, what he explains is that uh, th these people, the, the, you know, Carnegie Foundation employees, whoever it is that they hired to go out and kind of, you know, pursue this process, uh, what they did was they found a way to compromise the kind of boards of these universities, you know, they, they, he, the way he explains it, they tried first to approach university professors, and he kind of gives the impression that in, in general, the professors had a little bit too much integrity, that they just refused, you know, that like they wouldn't go along with, because it was the whole like, okay, we want you to teach history, but you, we want you to teach this version of history. And uh, the professor sort of class like turned him down. Uh, and then they went to the, the administrative class, you know, the, the boards. And essentially, they found their way in. Um, and, and, you know, 
gradually uh, over the process of, of decades, they uh, transformed the, the whole philosophy of the higher educational system. And of course, who trains the teachers? I mean, all of the teachers come out of universities. You know, there is a, uh, there's nothing particularly conspiratorial about this. I mean, there's a standard curriculum for, you know, grade school teachers that they all have to go through. There's a, there's a term for, there's like an actual name for this book. There's like some manual they follow. Again, I'll post all these things, but, um, and that, and that's what it is. There is a specific philosophy behind the, the pedagogical process that is, uh, basically the only one that, you know, the, the federal government will, will support. Um, and this, by the way, has to, this, this infiltrates its way into private institutions as well, because, uh, you know, private institutions are just like, they're, they're still nonprofit. They're, they're 401c3s and they have to, or 501c3s, whatever they are. Uh, but nonprofits have to abide by a certain very, like any institution that requires grant funding, they have to do what the funding body is going to tell them and not do what they tell them not to do. Otherwise, they'll lose their funding. So that's basically how they did it. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but it, it's the same thing that I've heard about in, in regards to what's going on now at hospitals. So like a lot of what doctors and nurses are doing is basically just like sort of uh, like a program that was like set up by some administrative level and they're just operating within those programs. And I've heard a couple doctors speak about this where like, they like especially older doctors who have been doing it for like 20 30 uh -huh. years they say that like their ability to like actually treat the patient like as an individual has like drastically diminished over the last like 20 or 30 years to where they're mostly just like following routines that they're basically told to or like treatment plans that are um like basically given to them from like by a, insurance a higher, companies yeah like a higher admin level which is then yeah, yeah i'm sure determined by insurance yeah and you know uh, insurance companies are uh, economically and legally protected by the federal government. So that that's essentially kind of, you know, I, I wanted to just sort of lay out more or less the structure of this system and these kind of interlocking incentives so that people understand, you know, the point I'm really trying to make is like, this is one of the major things that people, like education is really the foundation, the basis for almost everything that we're seeing in the society today. And I mean, that's exactly how it was described by the people who were promoting it, right? Except they generally gave people the impression that this would all kind of go towards a positive end, uh, you know, of, of people sort of being granted uh, a standard set of uh, skills that lead to, you know, increased opportunities and all of these things. And there, there's a certain amount of truth to that. But uh, I think for the most part, if you are someone who is motivated by, you know, the sort of thriving of the human spirit, uh, you know, th this kind of stuff is a problem because, you know, I, I am not a, a part of someone's system, either economic or political, like I'm a human being and I have my own journey in life. And I want to kind of learn the things that my brain wants to know. And I don't see any particularly strong argument from a perspective that is actually prioritizing 
education in that sense, right? In the sense of what will help a human being to thrive. Um, I just don't think that the compulsory or even the higher education systems of today, for the most part, are really serving that end. And so, I mean, with, with me, um, you know, for, for my children, uh, it was always a huge price. And of course, you know, I'm divorced now, so I've lost some control over this process. But uh, it was always my intention to not homeschool, but what's called unschooling. And unschooling is uh, essentially this idea that, you know, the whole structure of like a classroom-based education, this sort of standardized curriculum, uh, that this just might not be a very good idea at all. And, uh, you know, there are just so many different ways to educate a child. Uh, particularly through involving them in the processes of daily life, uh, you know, actually having them kind of do things uh, that I just think are infinitely more rewarding, you know, and more more stimulating to a person's intellect, uh, more effective at developing just basic, not only cognitive, but even just like motor skills. You know, we, I, I just feel like, for anybody who's listening to a show like this, you know, there's probably a, a fair amount of agreement that like, you know, the results of what we're seeing in our generation today is like a huge disaster. You know, like people are uh, fundamentally failing in mass to adjust to, to life. And I, I think a huge part of this comes down to compulsory schooling and the, uh, I don't want to use a scary term like brainwashing, but there, there's this effect, uh, the socializing effect that the classroom and school environment has on children. It's extremely institutionalizing and has this tendency to really discourage critical thinking, discourage asking questions, discourage concentration and deep thought, and just all of these things that make learning fascinating and valuable and, and, you know, useful. Um, and schools suck at it. Yeah. I think we're at a point now. I mean, like I said before, there's 500% increase year over year in homeschooling, but I think we've really reached like an inflection point on the curve here where there's going to start to be other real alternatives. And I know there's a couple companies trying to do different like online schools that are like venture venture capital backed and i think it's just a matter of time until some of those really take off i mean i'd be shocked if it doesn't happen by like next year like i think the timeline is really is really that that short right now uh especially given what you see with uh like the mask mandates vaccinations all of that like there's just all these forces coming i mean regardless of what you think about any of that there's just a lot of forces that are coming together to push people to pursue alternative education, whether it's homeschooling or whether it's something like Waldorf or Montessori or anything like that. But the other thing that I wanted to say about um, some of the alternative schools, especially Waldorf and Montessori, is that like when, when something gets that big, I think it's probably difficult to maintain like the fundamental principles that guided the, the founding of the institution. So like I don't know what like a Waldorf school would actually look like now, but I'm sure it's totally different than what it looked like 
yep. in 1920. You know, and I bet it looks a lot closer to like you know a public school classroom than it did to whatever it looked like in 1920 in Germany. You know, right, and and um, it wouldn't surprise me if these schools have to compromise on their curriculum and just the way they teach just to exist within the United States, for example, or within California. Like, so I know, for example, that with the Waldorf schools, they were under fire in New Zealand for like having Steiner's name on some of the stuff who they said, some people said was like a white supremacist or something. So like, I don't know if they had to like remove his name from the stuff. And then even, even in the United States, like traditionally the Waldorf schools teach religion from like a multicultural perspective where they teach like all the different religions and sort of focus on like they really focus on the child as a spiritual being and that's like written into the curriculum and it's like that's how they they want to instill in the child that he's like part of nature in this spiritual reality and and of course you're not going to get that (laughs) in public school so it's so it's marginally better than that but so so in the schools in the united states they don't teach any religion there I'm not, I'm not sure um, how far they go to instill instill that idea of spirituality. I'm sure they could try. But again, like it's just another example of the capitulations that you have to make at an institutional level to continue existing within a nation state or a state or with, with local law. It's a hundred percent, I think, illustrative of exactly how all of this works. Uh, in fact, uh, a lot of these tax-free foundations, like the Rockefeller Foundation, very famously went through this very long process. Uh, they were the first, I believe, they were the first sort of nonprofit tax-free foundation in the history of the United States. And they uh, initially tried to do this, like get this status uh, through the state of New York and the state of New York denied them. And so then they went to the federal government and the federal government put it through like that. that now you could have tax-free foundation. So, I mean, in other words, people with the means and the contacts and the resources, you know, they're going to, they're going to continue to pursue whatever end they're pursuing by whatever means they can. And they just have, I think this is like a really important point to understand in just uh, kind of getting a sense of the whole idea of like conspiracies, you know, uh, like they can do things that most people cannot, you know, and, and in fact, in many cases, don't even know that that's like an option, you know, the sorts of options they have in the legal system, you know, the things they can afford to pay for. Um, so yeah, for sure. I mean, it's this process of controlling things where you can, you know, they get the thin end of the wedge in and uh, gradually, you know, they they basically assume control. They get to hire the people that work there. They get to uh, determine whether or not the institutions get funding. You know, dependence is is what it is. Yeah, I think more than anything else, it really reinforces the, the, the importance of having local connections. You know, this is something that I've noticed more and more throughout my life. But I, I remember one time you were telling me about, I forget if it was in Vermont or somewhere, but you were talking about how there was some like loose group of parents who were educated, like taking turns, like leading the homeschooling Yep, or something like that. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah. So there are, I mean, it's, it's it, the term for it is a homeschooling co-op. Um, and it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be anything in particular. It's pretty much just whatever, whatever you want it to be. But the idea is that rather than trying to confine this process within your own four walls, you would uh, develop a, 
uh, a sort of a social network of like-minded parents and sort of engage in this process together. So this is, I think, um, and this is easier said than done, especially for people who are trying to relocate, which is often a big part of this. It was for me. Um, but that's basically the idea. You have three or four, you know, other couples. And I mean, even if it's just one, you know, that's huge. Uh, you can take each other's kids, you know, switch on and off days when you're schooling them. Somebody can take them on a field trip one day and then the other person can do it the other day. Um, and so it just, it just provides a few more hands on deck to, to manage what is in fact, you know, I mean, it's a burden in terms of time and resources. Like I don't want, so I want to say a couple of words on this because I, I mean, I really think if there's anyone who is in any way kind of considering some of these alternatives, uh, I would really hate to have people assume that it's like a constant miserable slog that, you know, you're going to basically be spending all of your spare time doing this. Again, one thing to keep in mind is this does depend on what state you're in to a degree, but you don't, if you're homeschooling or unschooling your children, like you don't have to teach them all the same nonsense that the schools teach them. Because number one, like I think a lot of people have a lot of anxiety around the idea that they're not going to be qualified. You know, oh, I don't like how can I teach my child math? I can't really do math. Well, number one, you don't necessarily have to teach your child math at the standard or the rate that the, you know, Department of Education has determined is uh, adequate. Because, first of all, most of the students that they put through public schools don't attain the level of education that they determine to be standard. Um, and so I, I think it's a little bit of like a, a fallacy, this, this fear that people have that they're not going to adequately educate their child. But the other thing is you don't have to do all of this by yourself. Uh, if you do a sort of economic analysis, I think you'll probably find that paying a math tutor to come for a few lessons while largely, you know, keeping your children at home will probably end up paying for itself, you know, uh, in a lot of different ways. But point being, you can find all sorts of people like the world is a big place. You know, the Internet works very well. You can you can always find a college student who will come and tutor your children in math. Uh, but I think more to the point, you know, it's just it, it's a mistake, I think, to get caught up in these oh, what if they don't know this so well? What if they don't know that so well? You know, who do you know that does? I mean, that's my question to, to people out there. Like, who do you know as an adult who is like, you know, super well-educated in math and English? Let's just take those two, you know? Uh, it's pretty rare. And I, I think we're moving into a world, again, you know, we're not in the industrial economic phase at this point. There is a wide variety of things that people can do to make a living. And, you know, they're more sort of open-ended now than they have, have ever been. Um, you know, teach your children what you want them to know. Uh, like, at the end of the day, you know, you guys are the ones who are responsible for, I mean, of course, the children are responsible for the kinds of adults they become. We're all individuals to a degree. But, you know, you want your child to have the best chance that they can. and 
that is not the same thing as having all the standard skills that everybody else has, because everybody else is pretty obviously screwed for the most part. I'm not. I'm not a parent right now, but if if I was, it, it's interesting to think about if you would even want your kid to graduate college, for example. At this point, like if you were to send your kid to like an elite college, <laughs> you. The only reason you would go there is if you wanted to work at like an NGO or something like that's really what it's preparing you for. Like otherwise, like even if you wanted to work for like big tech, you'd be better off going to some coding school or something and then trying to make connections within within the company. It, just economically, it just surpassed the point where it like stops making sense to even go to college for most I think I would honestly be comfortable saying for most people at this point. I agree. I agree. I think for most people, college is a mistake. Like, especially the way that they end up doing it, the degrees they end up getting and the path that they take. It's usually a mistake. I mean, I would, you know, again, we've talked about this before. Like, there is a lot of, I got a lot of value out of my education. Now, you know, that was because I was interested in it. Like, there, I was, I was studying things that I cared to understand. Uh, if, you know, I would say that if you have a child who, for whatever reason, expresses interest in something, well, that's one thing, you know, to plan on sending them to to a college so that they can, like, legitimately learn. But I think to sort of uh, plan that, you know, in 10 or 20 years or however long, that it's still going to be this paradigm where, like, you go to college and you get your degree and you come out and get your job, I think that's pretty much obviously over. I mean, this is also like a cultural transition in a lot of ways. You know, we still have not culturally transit like in the in the higher ed space. <laughs> I mean, it really is like I can tell you from experience, a lot of the people, especially the professors, the academic folks, you know, they, they're they're coming at this from like a like a pre-Civil War mentality. You know, they like they believe deeply in the, the precepts of a liberal education and uh, and I think all that's wonderful, you know, but it's, uh, there's such a disconnect between, I think, the culture that dominates that industry still and the reality that they're, that they're up because they really are basically degree bills at this point. Again, with exceptions, you know, for sure, the, the STEM programs in university remain a, a huge exception to this. But of course, as we all know, a huge percentage of the students, if not the majority, are not coming from the United States. You know, because we don't we don't train our high school students in math. Okay, so yeah, I mean, I think to wrap this up, uh, I just want to kind of leave you guys with the final thought that um, you know, education can mean a lot of different things. For those of you who are parents in particular, uh, please remember that uh, you know your your children are more precious to you than they are to anyone else in the world, and to whatever extent you can help it. There is a lot of value in taking as much control and responsibility over your own child's education as you possibly can. And while this is uh, not a very easy thing to do, there are sacrifices that come with this. I would encourage all of you to, uh, you know, very seriously consider this because it's um, it's worth it. <laughs>